Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you ethnos, peoples. Verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may Abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 15, we've been exposed to Paul's promptings and prayers and plans and pleas to the Roman readers. Paul prays that God would grant the Roman believers endurance in trial, encouragement in faith. Unity in fellowship in verses 5, 6, and 7. The Lord Jesus Christ has come not to gratify or satisfy himself, but to minister, to be a servant to others in verse 3. Jesus has come to grant salvation both to Jews and Gentiles in verses 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. The Lord will keep his promise to the Jews in verse 8. He will... Bring the Gentiles to faith and salvation in verses 9 through 12. Paul adds one more thing to his prayer list for the Romans. He says, I'm praying that you will experience joy and peace and hope in verse 13. Remember, in Paul's dream church, the strong support the weak in their weaknesses in verses 1 through 3. Everyone studies and obeys and believes, if you will, the scriptures in verse 4. Everyone works at harmony and unity in verses 5 and 6. Everyone accepts his brother and his sister. sister. That means they reject racial discrimination. In verse 7, everyone has hope, verse 13. In Paul's world, selflessness and the Savior become the motivations, if you will, for hope. Scripture is the source of hope. God is the God of hope, in verse 13. And since chapter 14, verse 3, Paul has told the believers in Rome, receive each other. As Christ has also received us to the glory of God in verse 7. The principle of receiving each other, not rejecting one another, accepting one another on the basis of what Christ has done for the glory of God. The principle isn't based on your performance or your worthiness, but rather on what Jesus has done. By the way, there are three ways to enter into a family. 
I think all of you know. In order to be in a family, you have to be born into that family, or you have to marry into that family, or you have to be adopted into that family. And the New Testament uses all of those images to describe your entry into the community of Christ, into the body of believers. You're, it's, the Bible speaks of you being born again into a new family. We're adopted into a new family. The Bible speaks of a wonderful wedding that will take place in eternity future as we are joined and united. Collectively as the body of Christ. So the benefits of unity, harmony, hope, power, and peace. Those are the benefits. In Jesus, the bitter racial and the social distinctions dissolve. And whatever differences used to divide us apart from Christ, unite us in Christ. We sometimes forget the context. Remember, Jews and Gentiles are supposed to get together. There's profound differences. There's deep divides. And so, ours is not a brotherhood of flesh and blood, but ours is a fellowship of faith based on the blood of Christ. Again, look at verse 8. I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, those are the Jewish people, for the truth of God to conform or to confirm, if you will, the promises made to the fathers. That means the sum and the substance of the prophecies and the promises, the covenants that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David, and to Moses. Paul describes the character of Christ. I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant or a minister. Remember the Bible says that Jesus came into his own, the lost sheep of Israel, the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. Jesus came to declare the Father, to reveal the reality of who God is. And then to describe the message of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he'll come to give his life a ransom. The New Testament apostle John makes a reference to Jesus being the propitiation. It's a long word and it's a difficult word that we don't typically use in our normal conversation. But propitiation means a sacrifice that was suitable in order to satisfy God. And so Jesus comes to confirm the Old Testament promises to the nation. And what was it meant to accomplish? What was it meant to provide? It was for the sake, look what it says, for God's truth. For the truth of God. What is the truth of God? In very real substance, it is the truth that God has sent Jesus it is the truth of what Jesus has said to the world. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus becomes the express communication. God's Word to a people who need to hear from God. So Paul speaks the truth of God. The truth held in love. He speaks the truth 
He affirms it at all costs. And by the way, truth doesn't hurt unless it's supposed to. Let me repeat that. Truth doesn't hurt unless it's supposed to. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that for many people, the truth is a stumbling block. Because the truth is that human beings are in trouble. Human beings are sinners in need of a savior. Oz Guinness wrote that Christianity is not true because it works. He says it it works because it's true. There's a reason why when you come to Christ and you ask him to forgive you, he will. There's a reason why when you confess him as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. There's a reason why your heart gets filled with joy and confidence as you begin to understand the promises of God. Nothing can ever completely destroy truth. And what is the truth of God? It can't be less than Christ. It can't be less than the gospel. So Paul rejects the notion that Christianity and Judaism are different forms of the same faith. He saw this even before his conversion. Paul, as a religious Jew, and Paul, as an observant Jew, knew that Christianity was, there was something about it that was a threat to him. That's why he persecuted the church. That's why the persecution continues even at this very moment. Even as we are talking, even as we're having this discussion, even as we've gathered as a church, there are people in Syria, there are people in Iraq who are being driven out by the Islamist radicals at this day. This is 2014. This isn't 850 AD. There are Islamists who are rushing into these countries and saying, convert or die. Either you will come to to Islam or we will kill you. The same is true in many other places where Christians are being tormented and persecuted, isolated or incarcerated, and under certain circumstances executed in North Korea, in the Sudan. At this very moment, when I was at the conservative uh, summit um, on Friday, I talked with the woman who broke the story on Miriam Ibrahim. She was the one who introduced to the world the fact that there was a pregnant woman in a Sudanese prison who was there and who had been sentenced to death simply because she loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Christians and Jews worship the same God. Yes, Christians and Jews study the same scripture. But that's where the similarities end. The cross of Jesus is the forever division between the two systems. Judaism is a religion with a torn curtain, torn in two. Judaism is a religion that the curtain, the veil has been torn in half because of the cross of Calvary and the resurrection of Jesus. And Christianity isn't some new cloth cleverly sewn back into an old veil. Paul reminds the readers that the ministry of Jesus, yes, is to the lost sheep of Israel, but there are other sheep the Gentiles, and Jesus is a minister to the circumcision, the Jews, yes, verse 9, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing 
to your name. Since God made no such promises to the Gentiles. There was no covenant with with the Gentiles. There was no covenant that was made with them. Well, what was the plan? You see, Paul anticipates, again, those people who want to continue in prejudice, in discrimination, in division. For the person who says, God has a plan for the Jews, but he doesn't have a plan for the Gentiles. God has a covenant with the Jews, but he doesn't have a covenant with the Gentiles. Paul says, you aren't getting it exactly. By the way, Paul will use the word Gentile ten times from verse 9 to verse 29... As we study, see if you can figure out where those mentions are. By the way, five are going to be from Old Testament prophecies in and of themselves. While the Jews were honored by Christ's coming. Yes, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He was born in a Jewish town to Jewish parents under a Jewish covenant. But Paul reminds them that the Jewish people don't have a monopoly on the ministry of Jesus... God did have a plan for the Gentiles. Paul reveals that Jesus came in part that the Gentiles might glorify God. Look what it says. For his mercy. Paul is translating an Old Testament Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed is a word that's translated loving kindness, but sometimes it's translated mercy. The Point being this, did God have a covenant with the Gentiles? No. But is God a merciful God? Is God a loving God? Is God a a kind God? The answer is yes. And Paul will point out that there are numerous passages in the Old Testament that God made promises to the Gentiles. God did not have entered into a formal contract with the Gentiles. That part is true. God's dealings with the Gentiles are an expression of his love and mercy. The The point that Paul is trying to make is that God has received both Jew and Gentile without distinction and the point that he's making is that Jesus is the proof of the acceptance. So Paul will offer three texts to prove that the Gentiles are accepted by God. He offers these three texts to prove that the Gentiles were accepted in the past. They're being accepted in the here and the now. They will be accepted in the future. How do we know that? Paul quotes Psalm 1849. Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Psalm 117, verse 1. And then Paul will quote from Isaiah. The reason why I'm even bringing this up is because I want you to get something and I want it to stick in your mind. Paul is going to appeal to the law, Paul is going to appeal to the prophets. Paul is going to appeal to the Psalms. Paul is going to draw from the three great divisions of the Hebrew Bible because he understands that there's a group of Jews who are listening to him or even listening to the message and they're not completely convinced that God has accepted the Gentiles. And so he will quote the law because there were certain people who only believed that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were authoritative. He will quote the Psalms. He will quote the the prophets. Now, again, 
pause for a moment and think about that. Paul selects three texts from the three divisions to make a specific point. Jesus himself gives praise to God among the Gentiles. In verse 9, when he says, For it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul believes that it's the Messiah who's quoting the scripture. It is the Messiah who is making this claim. Paul's citations come from Psalm 1849 where David, David becomes a distinct type of his future son, David's son, Jesus, the seed of David. Now for those of you who have a Bible, he quotes Psalm 1849, but I want to read to you Psalm 1850, the very next verse, where it says, Great deliverance he, the Messiah, gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. When Paul reads Psalm 18 and he reads verse 49 and he thinks about verse 50, the term anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. It's a reference to the royal line of the Messiah that ends with Jesus. The Gentiles are accepted, not because of Paul's opinion, not even because of his mature love. The Gentiles are accepted, according to Paul, because the Bible says so. And because Jesus says so. You see, there were some people who were unwilling to abandon their prejudice. They were unwilling to give up the discrimination. Paul knew that some Jews might be thinking or tempted to think, if God accepts the Gentiles, then he must not accept them the same way that he accepts the Jews. Paul concedes that God doesn't accept the Gentiles exactly the same way that he accepts the Jews. Why? Because the Jews are accepted on the basis of covenant. The Gentiles are accepted on the basis of love and mercy. The Jews are accepted on the basis that God makes promises to to the Jews on the basis of his covenants with the fathers, with Abraham, Isaac, with Jacob, with David, and with Moses. The weaker brother may, because of pride or prejudice, wish to reject what God has accepted, but we can't abandon the promises and the principles of the scripture. We must accept what the scriptures require us to accept. We must condemn what the scriptures require us to condemn. We can't abandon the integrity of the scriptures based on fear or failure or prejudice for those people who believe that the demands of the scripture are too high or the promises too generous because there are people who who might say you mean God would accept somebody like you God would accept someone with a different color skin or from a different part of the world. God would accept Jew and Gentile, black and white, 
free and slave, Greek and Scythian. Think about why Paul is making such a strong argument. Because some people were annoyed, maybe even offended, that God would accept the Gentiles. And maybe someone's annoyed and offended that God would accept somebody like you. That you could even show up at church. That you could experience his love and his grace and his mercy. That you can walk in humility and the knowledge of knowing that God loves you. And that he's willing to forgive you in Christ. Paul quotes Psalm 1849. Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. And sing praises to your name. David anticipates a day. Listen carefully. King David is anticipating a day, not simply when he sings, but when the Messiah sings praises to God in the middle of a vast multitude of Gentile believers. Paul embraces David's song and sees Jesus as the one who's singing among the Gentiles. And as he presents that vision to the Roman readers, he implies something, and that is, how did they get there? How can Jesus be speaking and singing in the future surrounded by Gentiles, all of them who love him? Unless they're accepted by God. And so the principle of unity allows the Gentiles to praise God. Look at verse 10. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. You see, earlier he had quoted the book of Psalms. But there might be some Sadducees who said, I don't accept the book of Psalms. I only see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as authoritative. And so Paul says, I'll quote Deuteronomy 32, 43. Because the law affirms what I'm saying. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Now think carefully again. Why in the world, why in the world are the Gentiles rejoicing? It isn't saying that they're singing the, the blues. Nobody knows the trouble. Anybody can sing the blues. You're depressed and isolated and distanced from praise. The Gentiles are rejoicing because they've entered into the blessings of salvation. You get that. That's why we can rejoice. That's why we can gather here and we can sing songs and we can sing praises to the Lord. We can sing praises to the Lord because our sin has been forgiven. We have been accepted in Christ. We're chosen and adopted and accepted. King Jesus, the lover of our souls, has saved us. The psalm continues, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. In Deuteronomy 32, 43... When it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people in the book of Psalms and in the New Testament. Whenever it makes the reference to his people, without exception, he's talking to the Jewish people. What is the picture that Paul is painting? He's he's painting a picture of Jews and Gentiles worshiping God and rejoicing 
in Jesus together forever. And in verse 11 it says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, that means speak well of him. All you ethnos, it means groups of people or people groups. Paul quotes Psalm 117 verse 1. And the psalm continues. For his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 117, the passage calls on the Gentiles to worship God and to praise God. The psalmist, as Israel, extends the invitation to the Gentiles to praise the Lord. When? This might shock you. In the millennial kingdom. In the earthly reign of King Jesus. In order for this to happen, the Gentiles have to be present in Christ's future reign. We're going to see that in a moment in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10. And I'm going to explain it to you. Roy Lauren writes, quote, Here is the law of Christian brotherhood. That marks the gathering of a great family that's gathered together from the ends of the earth. Nations will rise and kingdoms will come and go. But the nucleus of an eternal race is in the great Christian brotherhood. It's not a brotherhood by Adam's blood, but by Christ's, unquote. And so in verse 12 it says, and again Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. And he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. He's offered the testimony of Deuteronomy. And he's offered the the testimony of the Psalms. And now he offers the testimony of the prophet. And again the critic. The skeptic. The person who wants to continue in division. In prejudice. And discrimination. Paul anticipates. Okay. I'm willing to concede that the Messiah will be the king of the earth. That the Jews will accept him. With open arms. But the Gentiles will reject him. He'll be a reluctant king to them. And Paul says. Really? How do you. Come to the conclusion that they'll be reluctant when it says, and he shall also rise to reign over the Gentiles. Paul says, in him, the Gentiles shall hope. Why does he say that? In what sense? In him, the Messiah, who shall rise to reign, that means rule the earth. By the way, When did Jesus rule the earth? Not in his earthly ministry. He was born in poverty. In Bethlehem. He was an itinerant preacher. In Nazareth. He comes to Jerusalem. They hail him briefly as a king. And you'll remember, you'll remember when they crucified him. Pontius Pilate had written over the cross, Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. Remember the religious leaders came to him. Take 
that sign down. I'm not taking the sign down. Well, then change the sign. Don't say king of the Jews, but rather say, he said I'm the king of the Jews. And you remember Pilate's famous words? What I have written, I've written. It's not much of a kingdom when your kingdom is a piece of dirt in the middle of nowhere and your throne is a cross and the reign is from the time that you're placed on that cross till the time that you are taken down from that cross. But the Bible teaches that Jesus will come again, that Jesus will rule, and that Jesus will reign. He will occupy the throne of his father David, and he will be accepted by the nations. Remember in Matthew's gospel, it says that Jesus will come, he will separate the nations, he'll put the sheep and the goats on on either side of him, and he will rule and reign forever. That's what Isaiah means. But what exactly does this text mean? Look what it says again in verse 12. There shall be a root of Jesse. Now again, you don't have to be a biologist to figure this out. The root produces the fruit. How is it possible that the root of Jesse is going to be the king? Jesse will give birth to David. David will eventually have children and their children and their children's children. And Jesus Christ will be born of a virgin. We know that David's son will be king. But who precedes Jesse? David. How is this possible? How is it possible that the Messiah is Jesse's creator? How is it possible that the Messiah is Jesse's son? Here's what we know. Jesus is the Messiah. In his deity, he's Jesse's creator. In his humanity, he's Jesse's descendant. He shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. Paul said the psalmist spoke of it. Isaiah predicted it. The Messiah sings in the future with the Gentiles. The Gentiles aren't some afterthought. They're not some divine concession. They're not some strange turn of events. Because Gentiles need hope. And what's interesting to me is that you're not an afterthought. You're not some strange and particular thing that has happened as God is trying to orchestrate all things together for the good for those who love him. God has ordained and specifically called. He sets you aside and he he saves you in Christ. Paul says the Gentiles need hope. Paul says that the Gentiles will receive hope. In what sense? They'll accept Christ. The Jewish Messiah will become a a Gentile Messiah. Both Jew and Gentile must go into God's future kingdom together. Now again, the Gentiles can and will accept the Messiah. That's Paul's point. The Gentiles can have hope. That's Paul's point. As a matter of fact, Paul will later write, 
in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, as he's writing to Timothy, even uh, just a few, few moments before his own death, he writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, of the seed of David, according to my gospel. Paul doesn't disconnect the Messiah from his Jewish roots, but he also connects the Messiah to the Gentiles who need him. Our Savior is David's son. Gentiles are brought to God by divine mercy, loving kindness, hope in Jesus. And what I'm about to say is very important, so listen carefully. Holy apart from the Jewish covenants, holy apart from the Jewish prophets, wholly apart from the Jewish promises, accordingly acknowledging God's past and future ministry to the circumcision. Paul is basically saying, (laughs) as much as you may not like this, Jews, Gentiles are in. Why? Why in the world are the Gentiles going to be saved? As shocking as this might sound, God loves them. God's prepared a place for them in Christ. Why? Because they need hope. Why? Because they too were in darkness and lost, deep in sin, debilitated, if you will. Wearsby points out the progression in the promises in the quotes in Romans chapter 15, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. The Jews glorify God among the Gentiles, Psalm 1849. The Gentiles rejoice with the Jews, Deuteronomy 32:43. All the Jews and Gentiles together praise the, praise the Lord, Psalm 117:1. Christ reigns over Jews and Gentiles in the future. At one time, the Gentiles were without hope. They were without God. Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. Paul writes, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Jesus. He's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. We don't use words like commonwealth anymore. In the ancient times, not too ancient, there was a time when the British Empire was called a commonwealth and there were, there were groups of nations that would gather under the protection and benefits and privileges of the citizenship of the commonwealth of Britain. And so when Paul writes... Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't benefactors of the promises, the covenants, the privileges. Here's what Paul says. And you didn't have hope. And the truth is you didn't have hope. 
And apart from Christ, you won't have hope. You see, there are people who say, can't people go to heaven apart from Christ? No. Apart from his sacrifice? No. This is what the gospel is all about. This is why we keep proclaiming it. This is why we continue to extend the invitation. Because we live in a world where people need hope. But they not only need hope, but they need joy and peace and power. And so Paul's prayer in verse 13 is this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Believing what? I'm a believer. It's not just a believer in the fact that you live in a world and that there's a God somewhere out there. He's talking about believing the gospel. He's talking about believing the truth about the gospel, believing the truth about the sacrifice of Jesus. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. It's a powerful prayer, a benediction of hope. Jesus is the source of hope. God's word communicates the hope. The power of the Holy Spirit energizes the hope. God is the author of the hope. And so Paul is praying that joy and peace are connected to Christ and this becomes an important part for you because if there is a conspicuous lack of joy and peace in your heart, if there's a conspicuous lack of joy and peace in your life, then you might consider that maybe you're disconnected from God, from Jesus. If your mark, if your life is marked by a profound absence of joy and peace, Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for you to consider the claims of Christ as the source of joy and peace, the fullness of hope, the fruit of hope. And remember, 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 the Bible is a book about hope. By the way, in the New Testament, when hope is in its objective form, it all, always is a reference to Jesus. Colossians 1.5, Jesus is our hope. 1 Timothy 1.1, Jesus is our hope. Or the hope of the gospel, Colossians 1.23. So it's either a reference to Jesus or it is a reference to the common heritage of trust and faith and confidence in Jesus. The hope of salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. That speaks of God's completion of salvation. The abundance of hope is found in the hope of our calling. The hope of righteousness is the vindication of God's people in order to accept him as his own. A living hope, it's called in 1 Peter 1.3. A blessed hope in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, 13. Samuel Johnson writes, hope is itself a species of happiness and perhaps the chief happiness which the world affords, unquote. A.W. Tozier wrote, George Mueller would not preach until his heart was happy in the grace of God. Jan Roosbrook would not write while his feelings were low, but would retire to a quiet place and wait on the Lord till he felt the spirit of inspiration. It is well known that the elevated spirits of a group of Moravians convinced John Wesley of the reality of their religion and helped to bring him a short time later to a state of true conversion. Tozier writes, The Christian owes it to the world. 
to be supernaturally joyful, unquote. The joy that Paul speaks about is this deep-seated gladness, an inner pleasure, a profound peace. This is the depth of assurance that comes from having a right relationship with God through Jesus. And you'll remember in John chapter 17, verse 13, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, And now I'm coming to you. I have told them many things while I was with them, so that they would be filled with joy. When Jesus is praying to his father, he said the things that he said to the people that he said and the way that he said it was for the purposes that they would experience this profound joy. This is joy and peace that comes from believing in Jesus. From experiencing the God of hope and the Holy Spirit who provides the power to continue in hope because we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power and the grip of sin in our life. And one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. People who abound in hope and power and joy and peace have little time for hatred, for division, for quarrels over things that don't matter. So what are the benefits of unity? In the chapter, Paul says, we should have unity for the sake of God's work in chapter 14. For the sake of God's son in chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. For the sake of God's power in chapter 15, verse 13. Years and years and years ago, we used to sing, we are one In the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And we pray that God's unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. That's what he's saying. One in spirit. One in harmony. One in hope. Get used to it because I'm going to say it for the next several weeks. There are two kinds of people in the world. Italian people and people who wish they were. No, that's that. the two kinds. <laughs> two kinds of people in the world. People who have hope. And people who need hope. We often categorize problems that way. Problems that God can solve. And problems that are so profound that even God can't solve them. But Paul says Jesus brings hope to the abused and to the abuser. Jesus can bring hope to the criminal and even their victims. Jesus brings hope to those who have been traumatized by sin and cauterized by guilt and stigmatized by addiction. Jesus can bring hope to people who are paralyzed by fear. Why? Because fear is powerful. 
Fear can cause you to quit a job. Fear can cause you to abandon a marriage. Fear can cause you to walk away from the things that you know are important. It can isolate and alienate. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect or complete in love. Paul invites us to be made perfect or complete in the kind of love that only God can provide in Christ. Has anyone ever begged you to hold on to hope? Has anyone ever said to you, just hold on, hold on, hold on, and then your hopes were dashed? And so you keep hope at arm's length because you're still a little bit afraid. You're more afraid of the pain and you're more afraid of the failure and you're more afraid of the disappointment. The Bible says you're the perfect candidate for hope. Hope doesn't fail. The young need hope. The elderly need hope. Someone says you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, that might be true of dogs, but you're not a dog. You were created by God and you reflect his image. Well, I've tried everything. Is it possible to be angry and resentful and bitter and confused and worried and hopeful? Not really. I've tried everything. Really? I've prayed. I'm glad you prayed. What did you pray? Did you pray that God would reveal your sin? Did you pray that... For strength to abandon your sin? Did you pray that you could trust Christ? Did you pray for his promises? Have you learned to live and trust Jesus in all of life's changes? Depressed people need hope and suicidal people need hope. And people who have suffered life-shattering experiences need hope. But people without Jesus need hope. Leon Joseph Swainin said, quote, I'm a man of hope, not for human reasons, nor from a natural optimism, but because I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church and in the world, even when his name remains unheard, unquote. You might think, there's no hope for this country. You might be right. But God comes to redeem people and to reconcile them to himself in order to form a powerful congregation of hope. So what is it that you're looking for in a church? Paul says, look for a church where the strong bear with the weaknesses of the weak, verses 1 through 3. Look for a church where people love the scripture, study the scripture, believe the scripture, verse 4. Look for a church where everyone's working in harmony in verses 5 and 6. A church where the believers are disappointed and disgusted with prejudice. And they can't allow it to be a part of who they are. They won't allow it in the church. And everyone, everyone is filled 
by God with hope and joy, power, peace. Doesn't that sound attractive? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, we thank you that sometimes we're weak. And that you've raised up men and women who can come alongside of us to support us. And sometimes we're strong. Whenever we make the choice to just simply lend a hand to that man or that woman who is weak. Lord, we pray that we would love the scriptures and find in the scriptures principles and promises that will help us negotiate the difficulties that we face. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to be disappointed and disgusted by people who shove and push people away that they don't like. And Lord, we pray that everyone, everyone will be filled by God with hope and joy and peace and power. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.